0: How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. We got ourselves a program, viewers and listeners. It's going to be an absolute blast. Lots of great topics, great guests to talk to. Joining us in the second segment of the show is going to be the founder of the important entertainment industry nonprofit, Music Will. Dave Wish is going to be joining us, talking about this incredible organization and the one of my favorite topics to explore which is the interplay between two of my biggest passions the arts and education and seeing all that come together what it means for indie creators a rich conversational thread for us to pull on no doubt but we got lots to talk about before dave wish joins us it's going to be an absolute blast katie zaccardi our co-host this week always a pleasure how you doing katie
1: i'm doing great how are you doing ryan
0: I am enthused about all we have uh, in front of us on this program, and it's always a pleasure to see your smiling face. Now, um, I regret that I didn't have you with us last week. Last week would have been—I mean, ev- look—every week's a great week to have Katie Zaccardi join us. All right? <laughs> let me let me just let me say that from the outset. But
1: Thank you.
0: last week in particular, you would have gotten a kick out of because. In the first segment of the show last week, we interviewed a University of Miami law professor named Vivek Jairam, who this spring, no, sorry, this fall, he's doing it right now, is teaching a course at UM Law called Intellectual Property Through the Lens of Taylor Swift. Teaching about, teaching law students. Wow. This This is a real course at a real law school, the University of Miami, great law school, all about copyright and trademark law, through the lens of Taylor Swift's incredible career in music and entertainment in business. I mean, you're not a lawyer. You've never been a law student, but I assume you would absolutely want to get into that class. And I'm yeah. guessing you'd probably ace it just from your love of Taylor <laughs> Swift alone. Now, here's what's funny about this, okay? I thought that I had, I was brilliant for bringing him on the show, right? We love Taylor Swift around here. We love entertainment law around here. Mm-hmm. This guy's a perfect fit. And so I felt like a genius for bringing him on the show. And And again... You know, Professor Jairam was wonderful. Thank him so much for being on the show. But we weren't the only program that had the idea of bringing Professor Jairam on the show. Okay. The same week that he was on Break the Business, he was also on the Greg Cody Show. Uh, Greg Cody is a popular sports columnist, probably one of the most uh, famous sports columnists around. Has a really popular sports podcast. And he was also on Greg Cody's show the same week, which is fine. Like, I'm not jealous or anything. I think (laughs) I I really enjoyed his interview and I want him to get his message out to as many outlets as possible. Here's the only problem with Professor Jairam being on that show in particular. The Greg Cody show is the lead in for break the business. On Sirius XM satellite radio on Monday nights.
1: No way. <laughs> so yeah, if
0: you were tuning into to Sirius XM last Monday. Yeah, you just got all Vivek Jairam all the time. Just That's three funny. straight hours of just this guy talking to two different people, you are know, probably saying a lot of the same stuff and just two hosts fawning over how cool they think this class is and how cool he is and how cool Taylor Swift is. And you might find that to be a bit redundant if you are a slam radio listener. But if you're a Swifty like Katie Zacardi, that probably would have been your best night of radio ever.
1: Yeah, I can imagine it would have been very interesting to just get like his full TED Talk worth of information. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the class just in one night.
0: Well, and you were telling me before the show, Katie, that like you have a lot of just Taylor Swift thoughts and feelings that you've wanted to get out that you wanted to talk to me about before we get into our topics this week you want to give me just a couple minutes on just whatever you have going on in, in your taylor swift mind right now because she's I mean, been busy last few weeks
1: yeah listen like she's running our economy she's single-handedly like keeping millennials and gen z and pretty much everyone alive entertained but something very interesting that well the re- I, all i just said was if we have time can we talk about travis and Taylor because like, come on. Are you kidding me? Karma is the guy on the Chiefs. You know what oh. I mean? So, and, and uh, I actually saw TikTok uh, not too long before we went live where someone was like, I think the reason we're all so obsessed is because there's no rom-coms anymore. And this is just like a live rom-com. Like we're yeah. just watching it happen live. I don't know if it's PR. I just love them. I love it. I love watching what's happening. I am here for it. And she is feeding us. She is feeding our like, like seasonal depressed, like (laughs) single lady selves with all of this content. And I love it.
0: Nobody knows how to breadcrumb their public romance quite like Taylor Swift. Yeah. Every week, she gives us, like, 15 to 30 seconds of something for us to digest and for podcasts to talk about. Yeah! And, you know, this past week, right, it was her... At her concert in Buenos Aires, changing the lyrics to karma to talk about her being with Travis Kelsey. And then you see the clip of her after the show that they make, you know, look like yeah. it's just like a hidden camera, like, oh, we didn't mean to shoot this. And yet there's like 3,000 angles of it. Like, of yeah. <laughs> like they knew what they were doing, but of Taylor Swift running backstage, seeing Travis Kelsey leaping into his arms, planting a very big kiss on his lips, yeah. and just warming all of our hearts in the process. How can yeah. you not get sucked into this? Come
1: on. It's like, it's just so entertaining. It's like nothing yeah. else good is happening except we, this.
0: Even I, the halls, even the halls of legal academia are on board with this and why we have Taylor Swift law school classes, which uh, Professor Jram even admitted has like a mile long wait list. Like his class is I'm essentially sure. the era's tour of law school classes. Like, yeah.
1: And, and like he their platform that they used to book people's classes probably like Ticketmaster and right? people are like <laughs> I didn't get it on time. <laughs> uh.
0: That's exactly right. Okay. Well, lots of other big news around the world of entertainment that definitely has implications for creative professionals chief among which and this happened last week, like right before we went on the air last week and we didn't get a chance to talk about. It, so now we get to talk about it more. Uh, the fact that SAG-AFTRA, the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, has uh, appears to have ended their strike. On November 8th, SAG-AFTRA announced that it had reached a tentative deal uh, with the major Hollywood studios to end their 118-day strike, with the union's national board approving the tentative agreement with an 86% vote. As we speak now, the agreement is now headed to the union's full membership, all the rank-and-file members are now going to vote on this union contract for full ratification among the major points in the tentative agreement include a general pay bump for union performers stronger consent procedures for the use of ai by production companies and increased residuals for actors when their projects appear on streaming services now i have reviewed the summaries that have been provided by the union i've spoken with some insiders about this and kind of gotten their thoughts and after all of that review and research katie i think i've landed on three fundamental truths about okay. this sag after deal and all of these things while they seem kind of opposite to each other are all absolutely true at the same time okay. first this this deal you know first fundamental truth this deal does have some good benefits for the actors sag after make no mistake got some significant concessions from the studios here 7% pay bump that's retroactive which means it's already going into effect even before the union contract is fully ratified they're going to get another 4% bump next year and then a three and a half percent bump in 2025 you're see there are real tangible informed consent procedures that are going to have to be that are going to be in place now if the studios want to use actors for AI. The streaming residuals, there's real gain there for the artists, and that's a big deal because yeah. we always have heard these stories about how actors are really getting shafted on the streaming residual front. You're hearing all, you heard all these news stories about like an actor who gets hundreds or thousands of dollars in residuals when their stuff is uh, played on television or, or, or DVDs are sold, but when their stuff appears on Netflix, they get like forty three cents, and that's because right. of how how behind the technology these union contracts have been in terms of getting the actors paid residuals for streaming. This contract is going to take some positive steps there and help get the actors paid. So there's other cool benefits too, in this contract. Uh, they're going to require intimacy coordinators to be used across the board when shooting sex scenes with, with actors. That's important. Cultural appropriate, uh, hair and makeup will be, uh, brought on set for performance of color who need you uh, un- who have unique hair and makeup needs. Uh, there'll be some more fairness provisions and self tape auditions, getting actors uh, their scripts, you know, two days, three days ahead of time uh, before they can do a self tape audition. There's real good stuff in this agreement. The negotiators worked hard and got some good gains. So that's true. All right. That okay. first fundamental truth can't be disputed. Okay. The second fundamental truth, there was still a lot left on the table. Yeah, Um. in terms of getting the actors what they wanted, that pay bump, that seven percent, four percent, three and a half percent, while big, basically is just going to put the actors where they were before inflation. Like right. in, in real dollars, it's not a huge pay bump. Now, right. it's better than where they were before. Um. A lot of actors have objected to the A.I. protections that were put in the contract because they say I've that. I've heard that. Yeah.
1: Can I mean, you get uh, into think, that a little bit? Yeah. Why yeah, go bad? for it.
0: Well, they're mad because, you know, depending on how you're reading it, we haven't had the full contract yet. There are a lot of holes in this AI provision, right? Where, you know, the actors have to give consent for the use of AI. But what's that consent going to look like? Can it be buried in like a 30 page employment agreement that an artist is just going to sign because they don't know better? Um, There are still some there's nothing prohibiting movie studios, for example, for using acting performances to train their AI models. Um, As long as there's no like tangible sign of an actor in the final AI output and so the the folks that you've been reading about Katie that are objecting to the current AI provisions in the tentative deal are saying the only fair like the only thing that the actors should have negotiated for what we what we wanted our union to negotiate for was a complete ban on AI and Mm. anything less than that is going to create problems because AI is moving so fast the technology is evolving so quickly that if you leave any loopholes any openings in AI you're going to be able to the studios are going to be able to crawl through it and really uh, take some opportunities away from actors or at least that's what the other the other sides arguing right Um, now and then and on the streaming royalties front there's still a lot of actors out there who think that these provisions still don't go far enough in getting actors paid on streaming services Now, even the to 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 these detractors credit, even the union's chief negotiators, including union president, Fran Drescher and executive director, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, have both said that, um, you know, they've admitted that, look, the deal's not perfect. And we're you know, this is step one. We're going to need future contracts and uh, we're going to have to negotiate for more things in future contracts. This is just one step in a much longer battle, which brings me to the third fundamental truth and for those of us who are you know want the actors to maintain labor peace this is going to be kind of a upsetting thought but my third big takeaway from it is it is likely that this deal is not going to bring about labor peace for very long i think it's gonna be like a think, band-aid yeah it's it's very that's uh, a very apt description i think based on what we're seeing from what i'm hearing from insiders And just from the fact that like again ai is moving very quickly and this is going to create a lot of loopholes for the studios i think there is a decent chance that sag aftra and the studios could be in for another work stoppage in this decade
1: i mean that makes sense i would say though is that necessarily a bad thing like is it Not, I mean, not that they would potentially stop working again, but the fact that they can get this through now and then, I mean, is there potential for them to basically start planning what the next move would be without having actors be out of work or is that not really how it would work?
0: I feel like you should get a job as the press secretary for the SAG-AFTRA union because you got <laughs> you got the talking points down. Listen, and,
1: everyone,
0: like, like yeah, because it's I like mean, do it, do it in Fran Drescher's voice, and you and you just about <laughs> nail it. Um, but that is essentially what they're arguing. Like Fran Drescher even used yeah. the uh, the metaphor of I think she said something along the lines of the tallest bamboo are the ones that can bend. Right, where, you know, yeah. you're not going to get everything you want in the first negotiation. Really, this not. is a long play. Yeah. And, you know, we had to know what, you know, we had to get the stuff that we needed now. You know, the pay increases, fixing the streaming residuals, getting some protections for AI, yeah. the intimacy coordinator stuff, the hair and makeup stuff, self-tape auditions, all very important. Take mm-hmm. what we can get now to get us back to work. And then down the road, we fight for more. We, we you know, we, yeah. we fight again when the contract uh, expires, you know, but, and, and that's, and that's the approach they're going to take just as an industry observer. And as somebody who likes being able to see things on television that are new, um, I think, and, and I imagine I speak for most of the viewing public here, which is, you know, we want labor peace, you know, we want 10, 20, 30 years to go by before the actors and the studios are striking again, because you know, another, like every time you get one of these four month work stoppages, it, you know, it creates yeah. a huge problem in terms of getting new content out. Definitely. And then, you know, you don't get as much stuff at the multiplex. And look, you know, I'm pro actor. I'm pro labor. I want, you know, I'm I'm happy for the artist to get what they can get, even if it means I don't get as much stuff to watch. I'm not selfish. Yeah, right. But if you are hoping that this deal is going to create an extended labor piece, I don't see it.
1: Okay. Interesting. Interesting. But I also feel like how could they, I mean, It makes sense. Like, I agree with you. It makes sense. But I also feel like, again, that's probably what is best, though, because with one of the big things that they're negotiating on being AI and that being something that is moving so incredibly quickly, I think it's unrealistic for anyone to think that they would get just, like, full stop, you can't use it whatsoever, because why would studios agree to that? Knowing that it's moving so quickly – to say you can't ever use it in any capacity is silly, but then it's also, it's also important for us to be keeping on the pulse of that and be adapting the terms of that as AI is growing. So as much as a bummer that it is that like, this is not it, there's there's gonna have to be probably more negotiations in, negotiations in the future that might mean more strikes. I just feel like it makes sense because how can you make huge decisions on areas that are kind of not having the full picture ready to go yet
0: i think that's right i think that as technology evolves and as the number of ways that screen perform like the, uh, that media that uh, you know video media can be exploited all the different new channels that are created as internet proliferates as ai proliferates Um, as technology speeds up, right, there's, I think we might have to accept as an an inevitability that sustained labor peace is just not in the cards anymore, right? Things are going to move too fast and there's always going to be something to fight about. Like, 50 years ago right i imagine that the sag after negotiations with the studios was really easy like okay there's three channels on television stuff is played in movie theaters and that's it we just have to negotiate over these two things they probably get the contract hammered out by lunch yeah today it's movies it's streaming it's all these different ways to audition it's the internet yeah and it and it's uh it's AI that's come into the picture and all these different ways artists can get paid and it's all global now. And so, I mean, all these things evolve and change so quickly that I think, you know, it's no longer realistic to think that we're just going to go 20 years where the actors in the studios are like, yep, everything's still good.
1: Yeah. But again, I think that's a good thing because I feel like part of the reason we got to where we're at now is because everyone looked around and was like, wait a second no one ever made changes for streaming and it's been years and years and years and years. And this is so messed up. So I don't know. I, maybe I'm naive in saying this. I'm certainly no expert in unions or labor laws, but I do feel like this might be an awakening of sorts to say, or like, what if we were just keeping our, you know, hand on the pulse here and we just like more actively and more frequently make adjustments without that having to be a bad thing. Um, Obviously the studios is probably where that's the most challenging because they don't necessarily want to change. They just want to keep making money in ways that work for them. But I, I, to me, it just makes sense. Like we're in a time of just exponential growth in all of these areas. Why not just, you know, pulse check every five years or whatever it takes to make sure that things are being adapted accordingly.
0: Yeah. It's just, it, you know, it's just a bummer because <laughs> it, 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 it just, it just means that we're going to live in a world where every three or four years, the actors just aren't going to be able to work for four months because it's going to take them that long to hammer out a new deal with the studios because there's just no way that, that the few that three years from now that our current contract could possibly contemplate how fast technology is moving now the the one thing that i have enjoyed you know if there's one silver lining that we can gain from this labor dispute and it's a pretty silly one for me but i've always enjoyed it is like the a thousand different variations of the same joke i've seen on tiktok where the caption is you know Person who has one student film credit on their resume, and then you just see them going, We're going back to work.
1: We did it. We did it. We did it. And
0: that will never not be funny. Like, there are certain yeah. jokes on TikTok that, like, you watch them 10 times and they only get funnier. That yeah. one is in that genre. That is always a great effing joke. Okay, I love,
1: I love that too. I'm with you there.
0: uh speaking of TikTok videos, Katie Zacardi. um, one of the things I love to do when we have you on this program is, uh you know, whenever I'm trying to mine for content on a Katie Zacardi week, I like to visit <laughs> Katie Zacardi's TikTok profile and see what she's talking about and see if we can squeeze like five to ten minutes out of that. But, as you admitted, in your own TikTok video, Mm -hmm. You haven't been posting lately and I don't mean to put you on blast for that because this guy also hasn't been posting lately for all of the same reasons that you have not been posting lately but to your credit in the TikTok video that you made recently you talked about why you haven't been posting and it brought out this really excellent conversation about burnout and why it happens and I I just I have a quote that I just picked from your uh, from your most recent video that I really spoke to me about what the nature of burnout is and I'd, I'd love to kind of keep that conversation going and get you to elaborate on it you said yeah. in that video quote burnout is a sign that something is not working that hit me like a ton of bricks can you elaborate on this idea, please
1: absolutely I okay I'm like where do I start I've gone through burnout several times in my life and I think that it's almost become one of those things that has become so grand that it like gets lost in the sauce because it's like burnout is you are so exhausted and you can't work or even think and you have to take time off from everything and you're like it's so terrible and it takes months and months and months to come back from and it's just like this huge giant thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that's not what it is because I think that there are levels of burnout that are that. But I noticed recently in my life that I was feeling burnt out, but it wasn't it wasn't quite like that. It wasn't quite like that. I just felt tired and I had no creative energy in certain areas of my life. I couldn't get myself behind it. I felt burnt out in the way that I just didn't have any more enthusiasm to put behind certain things. And I will be transparent on this podcast and say that like that area was work. (laughs) So which is why I wasn't posting because I was trying to like rediscover my relationship with that. Um, But as I was reflecting on this and thinking about the times that I've burnt out in the past um, and what I'm going through now, There's obviously many aspects that play into burnout. Sometimes it is you are physically just pushing and pushing, pushing yourself. So you like, then you physically cannot move forward, right? Like you end up so stressed or so exhausted or sick and you like physically burn out. But I think that there's also this more emotional, creative, energetic side of burnout where It might be something like, I am like, again, my heart's no longer in this project, or I can't do this anymore. And sometimes it comes when you don't necessarily expect it, or it just feels random, or you feel like, well, I have been treating my body well. I don't know why I'm suddenly feeling burnt out in this way. But to me, every time I looked back at like, when were the times that I've been burnt down in my life, and what am I feeling now? I realized that the pattern was something just wasn't working. And that might seem really simple and obvious, but what's behind that to me is that it's not, it's an indication that you can look to see what you need to change. Because if you burn out and then you come back doing things the exact same way, you're probably gonna burn out again because something wasn't working. (laughs) So figuring out what is behind that and I again that's why I think it can be m- multiple things. It might be that you are working too many hours and your job is not respecting that work life balance and that's what you need to fix. It might be that you need to get a new job because maybe you're no longer feeling in alignment with the work that you're doing. I think sometimes what needs to change can even just be the income that's coming in. Um you know if we think about like your hierarchy of needs, money is obviously a big one that can cause a lot of stress for people so is what's not working your current streams of income and how you're making money and so anyway those are just some examples but on a on a again very 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 basic level instead of feeling like oh i'm feeling burnt out and that means i am totally in deep deep trouble and it's going to be so hard to come back from this i found it a lot easier to just say okay this is a, just a sign that i need to examine what I'm doing and figure out what is no longer in alignment for me. And when I did that in my like right now, I was able to pinpoint specific areas of things that I had been doing for years that worked perfectly fine. They were going really, really well for years and years and years and suddenly were not serving me anymore.
0: Oh, can you go into a little more detail about what that examination process looks like? If we accept the premise and it makes perfect sense that burnout is a sign that something isn't working, there's something in the way that you're going about your work as a creator or as a person. Yeah. And, you know, something's not in alignment. Something that was working is not working anymore. How do you as a professional begin that process of examining, you know, everything that's going on and figuring out what's the thing that's not working so that you can address it?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I would separate, like categorize the areas of your life and then do a bit of an audit within that. So say work is one of those, maybe like money is, is, you know, deeply connected with that, but might be slightly separate. And then maybe health and then social life and relationships. I would like separate these categories out, maybe take a notebook if writing works for you, or just, you know, talking it out with a friend even can help too. But going through each category and then looking at like, how do I feel when I think about this thing? Is this, um, is this lighting me up? Do I feel energetically behind it? Do I feel excited in this area of my life? Or do I feel stressed and tired and disappointed? And then getting specific within that. So if I'm looking at work, I'm not just looking at like, do I hate working with musicians in the music industry? Like it's not, that's very, very broad, right? Now that might be it. Like you might examine this and be like, I'm just feeling like I don't want to work in this industry anymore. For me, I was looking at it and I was saying, I'm noticing that this specific part of my job feels really draining or this specific program that I'm running is no longer in alignment with what I want to teach. But if I'm putting most of my time and energy behind that thing, well, no wonder I'm feeling drained because I'm creatively trying to do the same thing over and over again. I'm feeling uninspired because it's not working anymore. And so then I'm feeling burnt out in your relationship. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just saying like uninspired, I think is a word that you brought there that speaks to me. And, you know, can be a big source of burnout where, you know, if you get so burned out on something that like the notion of doing it again, whatever that thing is, as a professional, whether it's making a TikTok video or posting a social media post or you know, a podcast episode or something where, you know, you lose the inspiration for it. The idea of trying to do one more post just makes you kind of feel sick yes. um, or exhausted or uninspired. And that, you know, that's, you know, that's a, that's a sign of burnout.
1: And that's a great example, because I think that it can be as specific as that, where you're like, I love my music career, I want to be able to promote myself, but I feel really burnt out when it comes to promoting myself and when it comes to promoting social media. Well, if you're feeling burnt out, again, if this is a sign that something is not working, we need to figure out what specifically within that is not working. Is it the way that you're planning your content? Is it the way that you're showing up on social media? Is it the fact that you're scrolling for like four hours after you post and that's really burning you out? Um,
0: you're saying and- you shouldn't do that? I should probably take notes for that. <laughs> that sounds-
1: Literally, I should take notes for myself. I'm in this video I- and
0: I don't like it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I've seen this film before and I didn't like it. Yeah. Okay, but <laughs> for real though, like... like <laughs> Uh, To quote Taylor Swift. Yeah. Um, it's I think it's important to really like analyze and you get nitty gritty with it because sometimes it is in that nitty gritty, which is why I say we tend to make burnout this whole big thing. And sometimes it can be that in every single area of your life, you're just neglecting yourself and your needs. And so you're feeling that big, giant burnout. But sometimes it's like these little burnouts that are like. I'm uninspired here. I'm lacking energy behind this. I'm, you know, not setting this boundary in this one place and these like little things can lead to this overall feeling of burnout when a lot of times it can be quick fixes. Sometimes it's not. I know for me like I took 2 months off of posting. I'm actually still not in a place where I feel like I'm settled on the next path. But the initial feeling of burnout led me to do some really deep reflecting as to what I wanted for that next step and get me on the right path to that thing.
0: I, you know, that's, it sounds like you did the exploration right. And, and now I assume that you posting again on TikTok is a a sign. It exemplifies that like you've, you've reached a real good point in that exploration process and you've come out of it you know, learning some things about what wasn't working and, you know, can carry that with you for the rest of your career. And that's very good to hear. And I know it's like a long play and everything and that you'll, you know, have to re examine things as you go. But I I'll tell you for me, and uh, you know, this is this is something that's sort of hit me in the last few weeks and I'm really not sure what to do about it at this point. But, you know, the word uninspired that you spoke about has kind of taken over significant portions of what I do as a creative where mm. I've gotten to the point in the last few weeks where I'm pretty much not posting on social media anymore Yeah, and I'm not making TikToks anymore because it, you know, the, and the idea of like when I, when I even think of doing one, like it just, it it just like my, my skin starts to crawl. Whereas, but it, it, you know, that, you know, that, that feeling of being uninspired, that burnout is not extending to all the creative things I do. I still love doing the radio show. And Maybe it's because with the radio show, like there's a real one to one connection. I get to talk to you. I get to talk to Lauren. it's a it's a fun thing that we do. And social media it just you know, it seems so impersonal, so much like you're shouting into the void. Yeah, um you know, TikTok can be so demanding. and you know, you're always yeah. just churning out content. It doesn't you know, and and it it's dehumanizing in in a way that I think doing this with you isn't. And yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is because, you know, we talk on this show all the time about how important it is to keep up on social media as a performer and everything. But uh, I, I've kind of, and maybe it's just because I'm getting older too, but I've reached the point where it's like the, you know, the idea of posting regularly on social media is not doing it for me. And the fact that like Twitter's mm-hmm. slash X has become such a crappy hellscape now doesn't help yeah, matters either. Like definitely I mean, not. I, I, have like, po- I have like, you know, political ethical reasons for why I don't feel inclined to post on that platform anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, what I would say to you is do that deep reflection. There's, there's a lot, especially when it comes to social media, there's so many different aspects of it because it's like, I feel like I have to perform. I am like chasing the views and the comments and the likes. And when I don't have that, like dopamine hit, I feel like a failure. Like there's so many different aspects that can play into it. And identifying what it is for you that's giving you those feelings. And I think even you have a good comparison. You can look at the podcast and say, well, I don't feel burnt out around the podcast because of X, Y, Z, but I do feel burnt out around social media. Like what are the differences here? What am I getting from the podcast that I'm not getting from social media and vice versa and help to kind of identify what that, problem is and then ask, is there a way I can adjust my relationship with social media to make it work for me again and to re-inspire me? So that's kind of what I did. I I mean part of the reason I wasn't posting was just because I was trying to get clear on some other business aspects and I didn't want to be putting energy in a place where it didn't make sense. Um but right now when it does come to approaching social media, I'm really taking it at like, a. have changed the energy in which I approach it. And I think TikTok especially, the energy can just feel very like, right. you have to get this out right now, everything's moving so fast. (laughs) (laughs) And I have just said like, I'm just gonna post when I feel inspired to post and I'm going to take it at a much more steady pace and not try not to scroll at least and only check my account once a day you know, my non-scrolling account that is, because I definitely have another account where I scroll <laughs> for way longer than that. But um, but yeah, that like examination. And sometimes it takes time. Like you might not have the answer right away. It might take time to figure it out and to talk through it and to take some space from that thing while you do that. But that's okay. Well, that examination is important though.
0: As a closing thought to uh this before we take a break, is I, I do want us to talk to uh to Dave Wish. I'm excited for this interview. He's going to be great. Uh, I I am reminded of a video I saw recently from John Green on TikTok where okay. he hadn't been posting for a while and he put up a post saying that he hadn't been posting for a while. And he mentioned in that video, if, you're a, if you are a TikToker and you haven't posted in a while, don't apologize yeah. for not posting in a while. Your viewers have more than enough content <laughs> to yeah. enjoy And many of them will not miss you. And I don't, and he didn't mean that in a negative sense, but like in a sense of like, there's plenty of stuff that the algorithm's feeding your fans to keep them happy and keep you occupied. And when you pop up on their feed again, they'll be happy to see you, but they're not going to be like, where have you been? Yeah. You know, so like, don't, don't feel guilt if you need a break, if you need a time, because you're in this for the long haul.
1: Yeah, especially if you've done it for a while, like people, TikTok's going to show your old videos to people. It's, it'll be fine.
0: That's right. (laughs) All right. Let's take a break. We got Dave Wish from Music Will coming up. Don't go anywhere. Keep checking out Break the Business. Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Carella, PA, Miami, Florida.
1: Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K.
2: Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including Audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com.
1: LEK Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life.
0: Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusinessgmail.com. At you can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K A I R and you can follow the show at the BTB podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business everybody. Ryan Corella here with Katie Zaccardi on Sirius XM 145, all major podcasting and live streaming platforms and Just pretty much everywhere there's you cannot escape this show Uh, as there wherever there are live streams or radio shows or podcasts break the business will be there in your ears and in front of your eyes Katie before we bring out our guest one more quick Taylor Swift piece that I forgot to mention (laughs) uh I don't know if you saw this but um Travis Kelsey is recording like a charity Christmas album of some kind yeah um gotta say Kelsey, voice. decent set of pipes good on the voice. guy, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Lest anyone be fearful that like, if though, if, if Taylor and Travis have kids, like, are those kids going to be able to sing? There's some good genes happening there. I think, I think the swift Kelsey brood will, uh, will be just fine in the music department. So that's it's, good.
1: Especially because she was co-writing songs with her ex, Joe for folklore and evermore for one of those albums, at least it's interesting to know that exciting
0: stuff we're all looking forward (laughs) to that um i'm already looking forward to the duets that they'll make Let's go ahead and bring out our guest this week. He is a former school teacher and the founder of Music Will, the largest nonprofit music program in the U.S. public school system. Music Will has served over 1.6 million students, donated over 100,000 instruments and equipment, and has supported over 6,000 schools worldwide. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting musicwill.org. We are so happy to welcome Dave Wish on to Break the Business. Hi, Dave.
2: Hey, nice to see you, Ryan. Nice to see you, Katie.
0: We are thrilled to see you as well. You you make me happy in both of your roles. As, you know, as an educator, I love educators. I'm an education lawyer. As the founder of a music nonprofit, I'm an entertainment lawyer. I love that too. Everything about Dave Wish, I am a fan of. This is so so great. And you really had an opportunity to blend your two loves, education and music together when you created this organization that actually started in your elementary school classroom, when you were an elementary school teacher, can you talk about the beginnings of this particular program?
2: Sure, well, so first, thanks for having me. It's been super fun listening to your conversation. Um,
0: Oh yeah, that burnout conversation was real fun.
2: We're (laughs) we're all having a good time. (laughs) Woo! Yeah, well, you know, everybody loves burnout, come on. Um, uh, So, so, Listeners uh,
0: love burnout talk.
2: Yeah. Of course well so so I'm more of an expert on first grade than most people realize because I taught it for 10 years uh, but I also took it for two as a kid I was so I was so good uh, such a ringer. they're like you know you, you can't go you gotta you gotta show the other uh, kids how this is I done. saw Plus, the
0: joke coming me and it's too. still gone
2: <laughs> yeah yeah you know some of us have that talent um, but um
0: I love that producer Lauren's only contribution this week is just to tell everybody that she repeated the first grade.
2: Yeah. Outstanding. Anyway, sorry, Dave. (laughs) Just to say, we we know our picture books better than the average bear, you know? (laughs) Um, But, but, um, you know, so so, uh, kidding aside, it was actually, uh, that was kind of my first experience or like my earliest memory of school was sort of like, hey, you don't really cut the muster here. Like we have certain standards, you're not measuring up. And as a little kid, it was kind of heavy. I mean, now I look back and I'm like, oh wow, I see a rod, I I understand why they did that. Um, A lot of it was that they didn't really understand what to do with a kid like me. And I think that there are a lot of kids that um, sometimes in an ed system that tries to do sort of a one size fits all, a lot of kids lose out, especially the kids that aren't that size. And um, as I as I grew up, it, be, it I mean, it's kind of really funny that I became both a first grade school teacher, having taken it twice as a kid. Um, and then a music teacher also, because I, I quit every music program that I was exposed to as a kid, not because I didn't love music. I really did. But I just didn't. But there was something about the music that was like burning in my heart and in my community and my family. And it was like the fabric that tied everything together. And, you know, my world was like, oh, my gosh, when Paul McCartney screams when he goes from the A section to the B section, though I wouldn't have known that was called that as a kid, everything in the world is good. When little Richard just goes, bomp, bomp, loom, It's walks like <laughs> whatever this is, like just keep bringing me more and more of this. And when I got to music class, it was like um, – Ta-ta-ti-ti-ta, ta, ti, ti, ta, right? <laughs> or it was, yeah, or it was like, um, you know, we're going to learn to read, which for me was difficult, just learning to read, period. But learning to read notes, uh, you know, was, was challenging. So anyways, I was a pretty lackluster student. And I think people would have, you know, my teachers would have been surprised to see that I would grow up to become a teacher, but I did. Um And... I did it because I really love kids and I really love that opportunity of putting something of real lasting value in another person's life. And I think that's what draws the best teachers and, and all teachers really in many ways to the profession. Uh, there's no such thing as a profession that's purely, you know, angelic or full of, you know, people that are less than angelic. But if you're going to look for a teach for a profession that really draws some truly amazing people, that would be teaching. So, I was a first grade school teacher. I, um, like I said, well, I, so I'll tell you two quick stories. In the fourth grade, was the first chance that I had to play an instrument, and what I really wanted to do was play guitar. Um, but there was, but there was no guitar in my school. But there was this thing that looked like a guitar. It was called a violin. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right, fine. It's like a little guitar, whatever. I'll try that. And, you know, and after, and I remember how it smelled and I remember I was like, so excited. I'm like, and now I'm going to get to make music. And I, and I remember, you know, after I, you know, uh, was like, okay, but what am I actually going to do with this? Cause I couldn't really see a connection between that. And what I was listening to it was like, oh, that song, that song, that that Beatles song, it has this in it. So I remember I ran to school and I was, I asked my, I said like, please teach me to play Eleanor Rigby. That's why of these in here. Like, <laughs> I knew it. This. Yeah. And, and, and I remember what he said. I was like, you know, like that's music for home. We don't do that here. So I was like, well, okay, that's fine. Well, I'm not going to do violin here. I didn't say it like that. I wasn't confident enough. I was just like, okay, well, I guess that I'm not going to play violin. Um, and when I was in choir, I had a teacher, you know, we were singing songs. I wasn't particularly, you know, thrilled about, but also, my teacher wasn't that thrilled to have me singing. And she actually said, you know, you, you don't actually have to sing. You can just mouth the words, no one will know, you oh my know. And, and of course, you know. It sounds I mean, like
0: what they told me when I was in choir in elementary
2: school. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and all of these little teeny messages add up for a young person that basically, you know, it's a very subtle way of saying like this, this might not be for you. And and I bought that. I really believed that. Um, and it wasn't until high school where my dear friend, Paul Brill, you know, he could play guitar. And I was like, man, you know, I'm, I'm no bigger of a, of a dork than Paul and he can play guitar. Maybe he could show me. And so he was game. And the way he approached it was completely different than any experience I'd ever had. He's like, oh, yeah. What do you want to learn? And, and we like the same music. I was like, I don't know, Bob Marley, The Clash, The Kinks, The Doors, whatever, you know? And so I remember he, he's like, put your fingers here, put your fingers there. And within a few minutes, I'm playing Neil Young songs, or I'm playing The Grateful Dead or a Bob Marley tune. And my mind was blown. And I and I remember thinking, wait, that's it? It's actually that simple for me to have like a, an actual connection. Um. And that just grew like uh, in my, in my life. And I became an, an obsessive music maker. Um, I couldn't stop. And I was, because I found so quickly, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got a passport in this universe that I thought I was locked out of. Um, and so I, you know, whatever, I joined many bands, I started gigging and I had sort of an avocation of being um, a musician. And everybody that I that I met in that world, most of them were like me. They came to music outside of school, musics that were favored outside of schools, and approaches to playing that were favored outside of schools. So if if my seven year old or ten year old self could heard that I would become. You know, I would play guitar, bass, drums, keyboard, uh, compose, arrange. blah. I wouldn't have really had a way of understanding that. But the second I picked up a guitar and sort of saw a different way of teaching, a different way of approaching it, um, it became patently obvious to me, of course. And so anyways... So, anyways, I'll go to when I became a school teacher. So, I was a hyper first grade school teacher. I was always trying to do cool projects with my kids. And one of the things I would do is I'd bring my guitar in. And rather than like take the boring roll call, I would have, I would finger chords and they would come in and they would strum a chord and I would say, okay. And I would mark them off and we would sing and whatever. And they could not keep their hands off that instrument. And so, um, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try to teach all my kids to play guitar. Uh, wow, why not? It would be fun, you know, and first I to, graders? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, and,
0: I just remember how much uh, how much trouble I had with the recorder at that age, and you're gonna and you <laughs> okay. and you're putting a, and you're putting a guitars in kids' hands. I, I, how did this go? <laughs>
2: So, so it was funny, it, you know, I was worried about how it would go. So I begged and borrowed 36 guitars. That's how many kids I had from my uh, derelict musician friends who owed me money or favors or generally both. You know, I was like, Hey man, I know you've got that Yamaha under your bed. You don't use it. Remember that gig I took for you? Or remember the fact that I loaned you that money? Like, and so I assembled them together and I made it, a, uh, I, I, I asked all of the kids to come in with a parent or an older sibling or an uncle or an aunt. Um, It was one day after school because I was really worried. I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. And very quickly, I was like, oh, this is easy. This is so easy. Um, And the parents stuck around because they wanted to learn too. But in any event, um, I, I couldn't do music with them the way it had been done to me because my whole view of them was very different. I didn't look at them as empty vessels that didn't have music in them already that I had to somehow fill. And I also didn't know what that music was. And my view was like, I don't, I don't need to drum anything into you. You're inherently musical, just because you're a person. I'm just going to draw the music out, but I don't know what the music is. So first day of class was like, all right, um, here's an index card, write all the names of your favorite songs on one side and all the names of your favorite bands on the other. And it was like, all these bands that I that I wasn't familiar with, you know, Ricky Martin, Selena, the Backstreet Boys. Um, and so I went to the record store. Yes, it was 100 years ago and I bought all the records. Yeah. And I'm listening to the songs. I'm like, OK, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. We could do that. And um, so I started teaching the kids exactly the same way that I had been taught by my friends. How had I been taught by my friends? Let's play music together that we like. And I wasn't the student, they were. So they picked the music always. I never picked a song. Um, I did it in a way that was friendly and low anxiety. I knew from my own my experience just as a school teacher, you know, the simplest thing, moving your hand like this, can fit into that musical gumbo. And everybody can be successful um, if, if you create the right conditions. So, anyways, I started this class. It was a total hoot. Um, and very quickly, um, it started to feel like, oh, yeah, I'm getting together. This is like when we, when we get together with, our, with my friends. Hey, let's do that song that's on the radio uh, by Carlos Santana, uh, supernat- you know, off the Supernatural album. Um, and so and also kids started writing songs, right, writing their own songs. And it, it sort of blew my mind. I'm like, oh, my God, you're writing songs. And I started, write, I started recording them. Again, these kids were six, right? And <laughs> I think the main reason they were able to do it is, first of all, it's natural they should be able to do that. I really believe that. And also, I never gave them any reason to believe they couldn't or shouldn't or wouldn't. Um, we started selling those tapes to friends and family and then there were CDs, to buy more guitars because more and more kids wanted to be in my music class. Um, first, it was the second graders, the third graders, the fourth graders, you know, whatever. This is the other class of first graders. And it got to the uh, it got to the point where I was teaching kids before school, after school, during my lunch hour, and I'm still teaching first grade, you know. And those tapes started getting local airplay. Um, and people local musicians like um, Bonnie Raitt, Carlos Santana uh, and John Lee Hooker started taking notice of it. uh, And even like coming by the school and meeting with the kids and donating instruments. And, and I started, you know, I started to realize like, wow, you know, this is really fun. I'm loving it. The kids are loving it, but this is getting people's attention. Not, not just the artists, the community, the families. Um, But I couldn't take on any more kids. So um, and that bummed me out. Cause like I started doing this cause there was no music program. So like, wait, now I get to be the guy who says, sorry, you don't get to be in music class. That's too ironic and not cool. <laughs> um, so, so I started, uh, training other teachers that I knew that could play a little bit. I'm like, Hey, listen, they weren't music teachers either. I just like, I know you play a little bit. Oh, I don't play that well. I'm like, I don't, that don't say that. Um, <laughs> that's not, you know, like, do you like playing? Yeah. Then you play great. OK, because that's the point. They, they call it playing music for a reason. If it feels like work, you're probably doing it wrong. So, mm. you know, you should judge how good you are by how much you're enjoying it. Let me give you my curriculum. I'm going to give you my approach. I'd like to train you. Um, and then my little program started replicating. and I started seeing other teachers and other kids. And I, I wasn't the only, you know, weird teacher doing this thing. It was a couple of us. And it occurred to me then, this was way back in like two thousand and one, I actually enjoy teaching the teachers just as much as I enjoy teaching the children. In fact, a little bit more because the children are are less blocked creatives than the adults. You know, the adults have all kinds of hangups. The kids are like, "Yeah, whatever." you know, um, so uh, it I decided I would leave teaching to start this nonprofit. Um, to bring music into schools that didn't have it, or also just as importantly, to bring music to kids in schools who would never go into a traditional music program. Um, and there's a and I didn't know it at the time. I thought that I was just this. I was the exception. Oh, I didn't stick with music. Oh, uh, you know. Oh, I had to learn outside of school. Oh, it wasn't for me. It wasn't until I started really working with music teachers uh, locally and from around the country and other, and other, uh, teachers, general ed teachers that I saw a very consistent pattern. And this is borne out nationally in elementary school. Music education is compulsory means you get no choice. You must go. You will go, but I'm familiar. Yeah. You know, (laughs) we're all there and we're a captive audience, but when you get to middle school, you get to pick, and, and the kids vote with their feet, and music participation goes from 100% off a cliff down to 20% on a national average, and often lower at high school. And the irony of that is insane, because that's the exact moment in a young person's life where they'll probably be listening to more music than they ever will again in their lives, where they start to understand this music that I love situates me this way in this community that I'm a part of. And it's not an academic subject. It's like, it's culture. It's the air you breathe. It's the, it's the soundtrack of your life. Right. And, and if you don't see that in your school, then you just feel like, well, that's not made for me. This, this, this isn't for me. And so um, we started doing this, you know, uh, 20, whatever, 23 years ago, I started training teachers Giving them curriculum that we've created using our approach, um, giving them instruments and and networking them together, like people that want to bring something progressive into the world of music education, uh, because music education is often taught today. I mean, I heard you guys talking about AI. Everyone talks about AI, but music education. Uh, I've heard it said before. There's such a you know, there's no such thing in this day and age as a low tech. Um, Industry. There are only low tech companies. But I would say that music education prior to COVID actually um, was a low tech industry because it was being taught basically the way it had been taught f- for 50 or 60 years. And yet here we are in the computer age, etc. Now, why did COVID change that? Boom, all of a sudden everyone's online. So, and not, not in a happy way, but at least they were. And teachers and kids had to learn to navigate how do you make music together online. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things about crises. They speed up historical processes. But before COVID came, you know, I used to say to people like, we need to drag music education kicking and screaming into the 20th, into this century, you know. Um, At least and, into the 20th century. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, the 21st better. Um, And so. Whatever. At first, I was a little scared because I thought music teachers would run me out of town on a rail when they heard what I had to say, which is don't pick the music of the kid. Don't pick the instrument for the kid. Draw the music out of the child. Don't drum it in. All kids are musical by nature. And if they're not learning the way that you're teaching, then teach the way they learn. It's not about you. It's not about the music even. It's about the student. Music, children don't, people don't serve music. It's the other way around. Music serves people. And so um, Music Will, for 23 years, has been empowering children to find their their unique way of being musical. And I, And I say that, deliberately i believe and i believe that we prove it every year and our teachers do all human to be human is to be musical um and there are as many different ways of being musical as there are of being human okay you can't match pitch with your voice i guess you're not musical no 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 i guess that's a wrong assumption that's Hmm. not your way and by the way just because you can't match pitch now doesn't mean you won't be able to in a little while if people don't make you feel ashamed, if people don't make you feel less than. And so, um, you know, look, we, it, it's no giant secret. I know you're both sitting down. We live in a, in a, in a culture and a time where it's very easy to tear people down and, and, and be dismissive that kind of, that's very caustic for adults. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's nearly lethal for children. Any messaging that you give to a child that somehow that, that this, this thing called music, which you love so much, well, that's not really for you. you don't have what it takes. I don't know who gets to say that. I don't know who, but, but by whose judgment. So, I'll give you a couple quick things that I've learned. Oh, go ahead.
0: So, Sorry. so, Dave, I, I I feel so terrible for even saying this because I really enjoy this perspective, and I'm like just taking furious notes on it's a funny. lot of the great things that I'm getting, and I'm I'm loving the story of this, and this is everything I wanted from this interview. However, like our time is limited because we're on radio. Oh yeah, yeah. And and so, and I and I want to make sure that like you know we we let people know that they can find out more about your work by visiting musicwill.org. And um, I do want to get this final question out of Please, you because I want to get it. your perspective on it. And before we run out of time, uh, again, people check out musicwill.org Do you have any last tips, Dave, based on your career perspective for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? I want to leverage your expertise as an educator, as a musician, as a nonprofit founder. If a artist were to come to you and say, do you have any general advice for me to move my career forward? What would you tell them?
2: You're unique. That's your strength. Um, the public uh, is vast and broad. You need to find the environment uh, where your your uniqueness fits a need, and it will fit somewhere. And of course, I'm I'm not used to telling I'm not used to talking to people per se whose goal is to be uh, professional. But I would say also remember this. The thing that probably drew you to this career was not money; it was not um, anything other than love of something. Lean into that. Lean into the thing that you love and that you're passionate about, and don't take uh, don't take other people's word for it that you have or you don't have what it takes. And the last thing I would say is that music and the arts are their own reward. If you can, if you can work to enjoy the journey, right, do what it takes um, to get there. So yeah, you might work another job, you might have other things that you need to do. But um, keep that passion that brought you to it in the first place alive. um, And the people that care the most about you will take the care and time to help lift you up And you can do that also. Right. Artists. We live in a community. Uh, You know, how many of I mean, I know that the musicians who are listening, count all your friends who are also musicians, probably a very substantial number of them. Um, And, you know, as we face the onslaught of AI and all these sort of inhuman things, like Michael Fronte says, stay human. Right. And that means. Keep making art. Keep making music. It's its own reward. That's what my advice would be. If you want to learn more about um, Music Will and how we transform uh, lives by transforming music education, please visit our website, musicwill.org. Uh, final thought, anybody, including yourself, who tells you that you're not musical, does not have your best interests in mind, and they're wrong, Period. I have never met a person who isn't musical. Uh, And if you meet me on the street, I double dog dare you to show me that you're not musical. I bet I could prove to you in 30 seconds that you are, and you've been sold a bill of goods by someone who who may have thought they were doing you a favor, but probably weren't.
0: Do you hear that Ryan's elementary school choir teacher who told him to lip sync with the chorus?
2: Because he was singing off key.
0: Dave, Wish says that everybody is musical. Dave, Thank you so much for having your passion shine through in this interview. This is why I love talking to teachers, Katie, because they, they bring it like this. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, Dave. Uh, don't be a stranger. All right. We want to keep hearing what your organization's up to and we want to have you on again real soon.
2: Thanks for the opportunity. It was great to be here.
0: All right. Our thanks to Dave Wish for Music. World. Well, thanks to you, Katie Zaccardi, And thanks to producer Lauren and to all of you viewers and listeners for checking out Break the Business. We'll see you next week. Break.